Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Russell Gray, who grew up in Kansas City and graduated from college in 2017 and took a banking regulation job with the federal government, but left that job in November 2018 to help start the climate group Extinction Rebellion in the United States. He's now planning to shut down D.C. as part of a global climate strike. You can see the website strikedc.org. Russell Gray, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. So what is the, the global climate strike for anyone who hasn't uh, figured that out yet? Yeah, so the, the global climate strike is call, has been called by the youth leaders who have been leading the Fridays for Future movement. Um, it started by Greta Thunberg in Sweden, uh, and high schoolers around the globe have started taking off school every Friday, protesting government inaction on the climate crisis. So September 20th, uh, the, the, the youth leaders put out a call for a global strike. Um, so there's going to be actions all over the globe, uh, all over the U.S. on that Friday of high schoolers walking out of class. Um, and in D.C., we're looking at a march from the White House to the Capitol, and it's a completely youth-led movement, youth-led action. Uh, and I know for me personally, it's really inspiring to see people who are younger than me stepping up and taking action. So there will be a, a march probably in D.C. starting at the White House on September 20th? Yeah, that's right. And it starts at 11 a.m. 11 a.m. on a Friday, so people can take one day off, whatever they're, they're doing, uh, and get there. Uh, and, and people can find out about that at strikedc.org? So uh, there's actually two events going on in D.C. So one of them is the youth-led climate strike, which is happening on Friday, and that's just a march and a rally. Um, but the adults in D.C. and the climate movement ha- are also answering the call put out by the youth leaders, and we're doing uh, our D.C. shutdown strike on September 23rd, which is that Monday. So we're letting the youth uh, lead in their space on Friday, and we're supporting them, uh, but then we're taking over on Monday, and a coalition of groups around D.C., of activist groups, climate groups, and non-climate groups, we're all coming together uh, and in the morning, we're going to start occupying key roads in D.C. to try to bring the city to a standstill. So that is the adult-led strike on mon- on Monday, September 23rd, which is separate than the youth strike on September 20th. And and how many places in, in the United States is something similar happening on these dates? So September 20th is, is global, so that every major city in the U.S. should have something going on. September 23rd is specific to D.C., I, and um, we kind of chose this date because, on the one hand, uh, because we're a coalition, we wanted to be in this. The coalition decided that we wanted to take action during this global week of action, which is September 20th to 27th. Um, but for Extinction Rebellion specifically, we're kind of excited about this timing because if we do something really huge on September 23rd, then we can set the tone for the upcoming International Week of Rebellion, which is run by Extinction Rebellion. That's happening on October 7th, uh, and that's going to happen um, in several major cities in, in Europe. So London, Paris, Berlin, Amsterdam, Madrid, all are going to be doing uh, an, a road occupation shutdown on October 7th, 
and New York City and L.A., at least in the U.S., are going to be doing the same thing. So we're hoping that if we can come out and have thousands of people turn out on September 23rd, bring D.C. to a standstill, it will inspire people around the globe and let them know that the people's movement is finally starting and that people are starting to get into the streets and they'll be emboldened to do the same thing in their own city two weeks later. So we're kind of we're trying to set the stage on September 23rd and get the ball rolling so that two weeks later it gets even bigger around the globe. It's a wonderful plan and wonderful scope, uh, namely global. Uh, what for? We we had uh, your colleague from Extinction Rebellion on this show, Leonard Higgins. Uh, but for people who don't know, can you describe what what Extinction Rebellion as an organization is? What your what your mission is? What your goal is? Yeah. So. Um... We're a movement that's focused on using nonviolent civil disobedience to force the government to take action on the climate crisis. We believe that the scale of the emergency demands radical action and radical change, and that nonviolent civil disobedience is the best way to achieve that. And we also believe that if we want to make deep structural changes to our society that uh, damage the people who have an interest in maintaining the status quo, we need to have our own source of power to make that happen. And we believe that having the people rise up together is the only place that that power can come from to, to create the conditions for a transition to a carbon-neutral economy. So Extinction Rebellion in the U.S. has four demands. Our first demand is that the government tell the truth about the climate emergency and declare a climate emergency officially. Um, our second demand is that the government enacts legally binding policy measures to reach carbon neutrality by 2025. Our third demand is that the government establish, uh, the government establishes or acknowledges an alternative democratic body to oversee the transition to net zero. And our fourth demand is that the transition to net zero is a just transition that benefits the most vulnerable people in society first. Uh, excellent demands. I agree with four out of four of them. Uh, <laughs> why... Uh... Why, why the choice of tactic of shutting down uh, roads in D.C.? Uh, what, are the, what are the pros and cons, and why, uh, why plan it publicly? Yeah, so first, um, in terms of why we choose this strategy, so for one, for one thing, it's a way for us to actually use people in a powerful way. So if we cause a disruption that is so severe in Washington, D.C. that Congress people can't get to work, lobbyists can't get to work, the whole city comes to a standstill, then we're inflicting economic and political damage on the city and on the elites. And when we do that, we essentially can't be ignored. Um, so we're, we're planning on, you know, we're still pretty young as a movement, but we're planning on building up our capacity to a point where, on a coordinated level around the U.S., we can bring cities to a standstill and make demands. And if it's tr if we really can get to the point where all the cities in the U.S. are shut down until the government, for example, declares a climate emergency, it becomes very difficult to ignore us. Um, so it's it's a very powerful way to use people. Um, and then obviously there's a downside that people who are just trying to get to work who aren't responsible for the climate crisis will be affected. Um, and we, we, so we are trying to mitigate for that by focusing especially on areas where there's a lot of government buildings and areas, uh, especially, and, and K Street, essentially, where most of the uh, evildoers in D.C. are going to work. Um, 
But even despite that, we're going to cause disruptions for regular people around the city. But even though it's, it's, it's an annoyance in the short term to have to wait in traffic, the disruption that we'll cause on one day of a D.C. shutdown will be nothing compared to the disruption from extreme weather and rising sea levels that we'll see from the climate crisis. So it's actually, I'm actually excited a little bit about disrupting regular people's lives because it's a way to, to jar them from their daily, day-to-day routine and from their complacency and to force them to think about the climate crisis. Um, just because, you know, it's very easy in our society to go a week or a month without hearing the words climate change at all. And if we can get in the streets in this really visible way, then we're going to bring the issue into people's minds in a way that is impossible to do with, you know, a, a, a permitted march or writing a petition or something like that. Um, and another reason that we're choosing this tactic is because we've seen it work before. So Extinction Rebellion started in the U.K., They've been organizing there for much longer. Um, and in April of this year, they did something very similar where they occupied some central uh, intersections in London. They held them for 10 straight days and had over 1,000 people arrested. And as a result of those protests, they, A, had one of their demands achieved where the, the British government formally declared a climate emergency, and B, they increased the profile of their movement dramatically such that Every single person in London was talking about Extinction Rebellion because there's this, there are these huge protests going on. There are these, these roadblocks in central locations. There's all this traffic. Um, and this isn't a perfect metric, but one way to um, quantify the, the increased awareness that the movement was getting was during the April protest, the number of Google searches for the word climate change increased by 1,000%. So clearly, more and more people are thinking about climate change than they would have been otherwise. So we've seen it work in the UK, and we think that it can work here, and we think that it's a tactic that can be scaled up um, to the point where we have a social movement that's so powerful that we can't be ignored, because if you try to ignore us, we'll shut down all the major cities, and then you basically, <laughs> basically you can't ignore us. That's, that's, the, that's the main idea, doing something that can't be ignored. Well, I think you make an excellent case. I look forward to being part of it. I hope everyone will be part of it. We're speaking with Russell Gray from Extinction Rebellion, and you can check out the website strikedc.org. Uh, th- there's also a, a book I read recently that Extinction Rebellion has just put out about how to do these things that actually recounts what happened just recently in London. Um, I, I'm not recalling the title, but there's a, a review on my website. Maybe you remember, Russell, but there's a uh, a little action handbook uh, about this. Um, I, I also recently have been reading a, a new book by Lisa Fithian about uh, about her activism, and she recounts, you know, justice for janitors shutting down bridges and streets in D.C. back in the back in the '90s or the '80s, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, a, a few things occur to me. One, the, the corporate media was much better uh, at covering that than I think they will be now. Uh, and also they had the police on their side uh, demanding uh, justice for working people. Uh, and so the police went very easy on them, uh, whereas uh, things have gotten tougher and tougher in terms of the police and legal penalties. How are you... How are you adjusting uh, this sort of activism to the to the political climate we're in right now? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, 
So first on the media side, I think that you're right that the corporate media is becoming less and less friendly to protesters. But the good news is we have the Internet now, whereas the Internet was not around in the 90s or not in the same way. Sure. Um, so, you know, there's plenty of alternative sources that I think will be ready to cover our action. And in fact, The Guardian already did a, has already written up an article about it with during our press launch, which happened uh, this week. So there's definitely alternative media that, that will be happy to cover it. But more than that, I think that, and this is complete, me completely talking out of personal opinion, but I think that there's that the Internet is starting to give humanity this kind of collective consciousness in a way that hasn't really been possible before. So things that are really dramatic that happen on the Internet are, are really easy to spread through social media and to spread through people sharing it. Um, like, I kind of imagine, like, the, the way that the Amazon fire crisis has, has progressed where, you know, the Amazon's been getting deforested for years and everybody started paying attention to it. It was getting covered in all these media outlets. Um, and so I just kind of think about it like all of a sudden the attention of the Internet, the attention of America kind of started to focus on this. So I imagine that on somewhat of a lesser scale, we can do the same thing where we can get people's attention, even if we're not getting covered by the New York Times, we'll still get people's attention and still get people paying, like reading about what we're doing. Um, and then regarding the police, so it's interesting that you mention um, the police in D.C. because... D.C. specifically has had so many marches and so many protests, and the police have actually been sued several times for the way they treat protesters. So in recent years, they've adopted a policy of trying not to arrest people. So someone has told me about a, a blockade they did where they had a chain of bikes that was, like, across the entire road, and the police basically, and, you know, there are a bunch of people there, and the police basically cut the chain, moved off the bikes, pushed everybody out of the road, and then didn't arrest anybody. And we're kind of, ex I, I'm not sure what to expect, really. Every time that I think I know what the police are going to do, they do something different. But if they if they act the way that they that we've seen them act and the way they've been acting over the last 10 or 15 years, they are probably not going to want to arrest people. And I think it's because they know that the more people they arrest, the more crazy our protest seems and the more notoriety we get, and also the more paperwork they have to do. So they actually have an incentive not to try to arrest people. But who knows? If the disruption is so bad on September 23rd that nobody can get to work, difficult to say what the police, how the police will react. Well, it's, it's wonderful, Russell, that you have on your website and in all of your statements that you're using nonviolent uh, techniques, nonviolent activism. How was, how was that decided upon? Yeah, so that... That's a policy, or that's a that's a position that comes from Extinction Rebellion in the UK, and we've adopted it here as Extinction Rebellion DC. But I think within the, the activist community here, there's an understanding that using nonviolence it gives it gives us a, a moral high ground. For one thing, it it allows us to to take the to take the high road and to um, have a movement that is morally sound that people can get behind. So it makes people more likely to support us. There's also an acknowledgement that, you know, us as a movement, we could never hope to defeat the U.S. government in a violent struggle just because the U.S. government has so many tanks and drones and guns. It's a, it's, it's a foolish strategy to take, but by using nonviolence, we can actually use that strength against them. And the harder that they repress us, the stronger our movement becomes and the more people realize that 
we're on the right side of history trying to preserve a habitable planet, and the government is not acting logically in any sense of the word by punishing the people who are trying to save the planet. Um, so yeah, th- there's just kind of a, a strategic understanding that, that using nonviolence is both a, st- a strategic choice and it's also a moral choice. So it's the best strategy we have available to us in this situation. Uh, very well said. Couldn't agree more. And you're doing, you're doing trainings and preparing people for how to uh, remain nonviolent, how to be effective, and, and uh, informing them what risks they're taking, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, uh, have, have any peace groups, anti-war groups, uh, gotten involved in planning this? Yeah, so Code Pink, who's a pretty uh, notable anti-war group, uh, a women-led group. They're they're in our coalition. They're very excited about doing this, um, and we're also like we're we're building out our protest based on affinity groups. So, you know, these are groups of five to twenty people who all know each other, who decided they want to get involved in the protest, and they're kind of our our core units on the ground that we're distributing around to intersections, uh, and they keep each other safe because they know each other and understand each other, work together, and train together. So there's tons of space within our strike for more affinity groups to form. So right now we have the Code Pink affinity group, which is anti-war, but there's plenty of space for other groups to step up and and take an anti-war focus during the protest as well. Yeah, wonderful. I, I'll tell you my my secret uh, strategy or or unrequested ad- advice, and see what you think for how you get all the peace groups to immediately uh, sign on and take part. To what extent they're they're able, uh, and that is that you you include a sentence or a word somewhere in your in your writings uh, acknowledging that the military exists and that it damages the climate um you know when the, the 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 green party used to have the green new deal and they did that right you know the military's a big part of the pollution they fight the wars over the fossil fuels they're where all the money is that we need etc uh but then you have all these green new deals in congress that seem not to be aware that the military exists up until uh senator sanders uh green new deal plan uh which which uh, all the peace advocates love because it admits that the military exists. Uh, so I, I think that's all it takes uh, is, you know, just like three words somewhere admitting that one of the policies that has to change is is the environmental destruction by the military. And that's it. You're you're in all, you know, every anti-war group uh, is going to do everything they possibly can. Um, what do you think? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's an easy sell because like you said, the military has a lot of the money that we need to create a net zero economy, and they're also the single largest institutional producer of fossil fuel emissions on the planet. So, very easy sell to say, to say that we need to scale back the military, not to mention all of the war crimes that the United States has committed overseas in the last 50 to 70 years. It's a, it's an easy sell. It's an easy sell to me and to your average person. Uh, but most big environmental groups won't touch it with a ten foot pole, you know. And we we had a conference in in Washington D.C. in 2017. I don't know if Extinction Rebellion was started up yet uh, at that time, and had all the environmental groups we could get to to come uh, to talk about peace and the environment as one united movement. Uh, and and the 
the bigger environmental groups really do not want to touch it, uh, although peace groups are generally happy to support environmental initiatives. Uh, the reverse is usually not the case, uh, so it's, it's wonderful to hear you say that uh, and to hear uh, others in Extinction Rebellion say similar things. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of the Big Greens, most of the Big Greens haven't come out in support of Extinction Rebellion, and many of them aren't even in support of using nonviolent direct action. So... There's a reason that Extinction Rebellion needed to step up into the scene and fill this space because it wasn't really getting done. So, yeah, I don't know if I would worry too much about what the Big Greens are saying. The, the people in the streets are the ones who really understand what needs to happen. So what is the, what is the goal to be accomplished, if any, uh, through a week of action uh, followed by another week of global action? I mean, it's, it's usually in, in going after a city and shutting down a city, you're demanding something locally uh, and, and escalating your actions uh, indefinitely in hopes of pressuring somebody uh, or some group into meeting your demand. Uh, but this is sort of a global demand of everyone in power. Uh, how, how, how is this going to work and what, what, do you, what do you hope will come out of these couple of weeks? Yeah, that's a great question. So for D.C. specifically, we're still in conversations about what we want our demands to be, and we're trying to make, we're trying to make that decision with a space for all the participants to have a voice in that decision-making process. So it's still to be determined. Um, but I will say that the Extinction Rebellion demands uh, for the week of action in October are pretty clear-cut. So first one, you know, declaring a climate emergency, which the U.K. has already done, um, but these other countries haven't done. So I guess that would be the immediate goal. That's a very achievable goal, just to have the government say, okay, you're right, it is an emergency. We are all going to die. Like, that's a very achievable goal to have. And maybe, but I guess more, more, maybe oh, more of an emergency than poor people coming to our country as refugees. Like, maybe like a higher level emergency than these emergencies Trump keeps declaring for other things. Yeah, <laughs> something like that, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that the the way to describe the ultimate goal of Extinction Rebellion is that the third demand, which is an alternative democratic body to oversee the transition. And that's kind of what I think is the, the ultimate achievement that we can have, is that we have a social movement that's so strong and has so much popular support that either the government acknowledges, like the government sets up some sort of, of other body that is so I guess I should start with uh, an example of what I'm talking about. So in the UK, they have these things called citizens' assemblies, um, and it's basically a randomly selected group of people. So randomly selected, just like jury duty is randomly selected, and it's maybe 500 people, and they become empowered to make decisions on policy uh, over a specific issue. So the UK demand is that the, the government establishes a citizens' assembly to oversee the transition to net zero. And that Citizens' Assembly will have full control over all the environmental policy and energy policy, transportation policy, all of that stuff. And they'll hear from experts, they'll make votes, operate basically as a normal uh, legislative body, except that they don't have to run for re-election, so they don't have to worry about campaign donors. Um, they won't have to worry about any donors. Essentially, it's it's... And so in the U.S. and in other countries where we don't have that same concept of a citizen's assembly, we're still kind of figuring out what exactly 
we want. But the basic acknowledgement is that Congress, as it exists right now, is so structurally broken at a fundamental level that there's no hope that it could possibly it possibly enact a transition to net zero at the at the scale and speed required. There's just too many blockages within the way the system works, too much corrupting influence. So we need some other some other body, some other group, some other legislature that's making these decisions. Um, and so the ultimate goal, I guess, of Extinction Rebellion is creating a social movement that's so powerful that when we create an alternative body like this, it is empowered and legitimized by people in the streets to the extent that the government can't ignore it. So it could look like one, what maybe the most likely scenario would be the government's not acknowledging or creating an alternative body. So the people, the activist movements around the country come up with our own system. And suddenly we have 300 people who are selected in a fair way, who are not beholden to corporate interests, who are overseeing environmental policy. And then that group starts to make demands of the U.S. government. And if the U.S. government doesn't meet those demands, all of a sudden there's hundreds of thousands of people in the streets and the economy can't function. And then the, then the government has no choice but to acknowledge the demands that are coming out of this body. So something along these lines is, I think, the ultimate goal, where we have a decision-making body that can actually make the decisions that are required by the crisis and a social movement that can make sure that those decisions have teeth that, that they're actually backed up in a powerful way. It uh, seems quite a trick to either either create uh, a body with power outside of the existing power structures or get the existing uh, Congress of the United States uh, to create uh, a separate body that, uh, that can overrule that Congress. Uh, or, you know, the traditional alternative that we've been trying for years, which is, you know, get the money out of the elections, get free airtime and gerrymandering and the Electoral College, you know, get uh, get fair ballot access, etc. In other words, make Congress into a, into a responsible body. Uh, I don't know which of those, uh, which of those is easier. Yeah, and you're definitely right that it's a it's a tall order to to call for something like that. But the unfortunate reality is that in the situation we're in, we don't really have a choice. We have, you know, at most two years to start a complete societal transformation to net zero. And in my estimation, the only way that we can possibly hope to have that happen is through an alternative body taking power that's supported by a massive popular movement. And so. Yes, it is crazy, but it's also essentially our only hope. And if we fail to do to do that, if we fail to start this transition to net zero fast enough, then we're going to lock in runaway warming, and basically the Earth will get hotter for the entirety of the rest of my life, the entirety of the lives of any child that's born today and the next several centuries. Even if humans completely stop all of their emissions, the Earth will just continue to get warmer and warmer. And then we'll see temperatures like, 20 degrees Fahrenheit warmer by 2100 or 2200 and the earth will become uninhabitable and billions of refugees suffering at a scale never before seen, complete collapse of ecosystems, complete collapse of food systems. I'm just scratching the surface of some of the negative impacts here. So given that this is what we're facing and given that we have like a very limited time to make these deep structural changes, I'm basically, we're, we're taking a moonshot here trying to get the, to try trying to get this alternative body set up, but we don't really have a choice. It's kind of our, our last ditch attempt to stop runaway warming. That's how I'm thinking about it at least. 
Well, very well said, and the group is very well named, Extinction Rebellion. We are rebelling against that extinction. We've been speaking with Russell Gray. Uh, look for more information at talknationradio.org about the global climate strike and about strikedc.org. Russell, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.